It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my right fit method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. I carefully select my guests who serve as powerful users of my right fit method. A key component of that method is passion, our career fuel, the impetus and foundation of career success. But passion in and of itself is not enough. We must strategically manage that passion to achieve our desired outcomes, career and personal success. Looking back on my own career as a high-level manager in healthcare, my current career overseeing the executive search firm I founded in 2003, Barrow Global Search, Inc., and coaching candidates at all levels, I realize that many people are unhappy because they do not know how to harness their passion to reach a destination. I use the term manage the process and teach people how to walk down the right fit road to reach their destination. That's why in my book, Win Without Competing, I select storytellers who are soaked in passion and excel in managing the process. My guest today, Maria Dabrowski, is a stellar example of an artist soaked in passion who, at an early age, learned how to manage the process. I recommend that you listen to my interviews of previous guests to experience their passion and how they manage the process to achieve their goals. Dr. Julian Malvo, President, Bennett College for Women. Ann Edwards, internationally best-selling biographer and Pulitzer Prize nominee for her biography of Reagan. Stephen Citron, best-selling author and authority on the musical theater. Jan Constantine, general counsel for the Authors Guild, who won the landmark copyright case against Google. Go to drbarrow.com, that's drbarrow.com, and click on the June 3rd show description for Malvo, April 1st for Edwards, May 27th for Citron, May 6th for Constantine. On to my guest, Maria Dabrowski award-winning fine jewelry designer. Maria comes from a long line of artists, sculptors, and wood carvers. She is a self-taught jeweler who began silversmithing at the age of 12 and later studied at the Academy of Jewelry Arts in New York, concentrating in gold granulation, hand-cutting of gems, and cloisonne enameling. With an innate sense of color 
and a natural affinity for shape and symmetry, Maria's designs are constantly evolving and earned her an American Trade Association, Gem Trade Association Spectrum Award, as well as two coveted Jewelers Circular Keystone Jewelers Choice Awards. Jabrowski's jewelry has appeared on television shows, magazine covers, and in juried art exhibits. Welcome, Maria, to Win Without Competing. Hello, Dr. Arlene. Very nice to join you. Tell us about your childhood. Where did you grow up, and what did your parents do? I grew up in Concord, Massachusetts, in a very artistic family. My grandfather was a renowned woodcarver, a woodcarving master. My father was trained as a sculptor, a painter, an illustrator. And my mother was um, very well versed in sewing. She made her own rugs, she knitted, she crocheted, and eventually had her own candle-making business. What I think is fascinating is that you come from an aristocracy of artists, sculptors, and woodcarvers. Tell us more about them. Well, my grandfather's work can be seen in the Frick Museum, which was at the time the Frick Mansion. Um, My father had a very successful ceramics business in New York. I'm sorry, in New Hampshire. He was a member of the League of New Hampshire Craftsmen. And my home life was very creative and inventive. How did your family encourage you to be creative? Well, um, my uh, parents were very uh, encouraging. I learned a lot from them. Um, You know, we did the basic things around the house. We were always doing different projects. We did baking and cooking. We made our own Christmas ornaments. We made our own homemade wrapping paper. We made all all of our holiday gift cards and handmade envelopes. We were always doing different projects from the time I was very young. And I know your mother was a candle maker because you told me that her candles um, were sold at the renowned Bonwit Tellers on Fifth Avenue. That's right. In the um, late 40s, before she met my uh, married my father. Um, she had a very successful candle-making business. They were very original candles. And when they, she had a special process that she invented. When they were lit from the top, they glowed fully all the way through to the bottom. They were very tall, six and eight inches tall. Is that a process that you think other candle-makers replicated? No, actually, um, she left me a secret recipe for these candles, and I'm sworn to secrecy to never share with anybody else. Ah, but you yourself have, did you ever try her secret recipe for candles? I think that's fabulous. There aren't too many daughters that can say they have a secret recipe for candles. Well, that's true, but unfortunately, I never had the molds. She had tin molds made, very large ones in different shapes, an oval, a round. Um, They were very tall, very wide pillars, uh, square and a rectangle. And I believe she had a heart-shaped one, too. Oh, so she never gave you the molds is what you're saying. So she she gave you half of the story, in essence. That's right. I never did make um, the candles, but you're encouraging me now. I'm really interested to try. I think so. I think so. And we would certainly like to have you back on the show to tell us what happened. I think our listeners would be intrigued to see whether you could replicate what your mother did many, many years ago. I'd love to. Thank you. You became an entrepreneur as a child and won an award for entrepreneurship in high school. Highlight major milestones of childhood entrepreneurship. Well, when I was eight years old, um, I bought a kit at a hobby shop for making glass bead and copper wire rings. And I made them, and I sold them door-to-door in my neighborhood. And so that, that was successful. That was successful. I actually made a profit on that, and that was uh, 
very encouraging to me to see that I could be rewarded for my work that I made by hand. When I was 12 years old, I took jewelry-making classes at a museum in a neighboring town, to court of a museum. Um, I took a beginning jewelry-making class. And did you then start to do more in that arena? Because I know you also told me you attended an art day camp when you were younger at age eight, and that apparently um, stimulated you to do more in this arena. Absolutely. I I attended um, a day camp, a summer day camp at the Court of a Museum. Uh, They had a program when I was growing up, and I believe they still do, for ages five through eight. And um, we did... uh, different projects. I remember doing painting. I remember doing drawing. One of the main projects that I remember was doing sand casting with plaster of Paris. I made a fabulous mask. Ah. So now, um, tell us more about the silversmithing. I know that at age 12, you did silversmithing. What is silversmithing? And why did you decide to to do it? Well, silversmithing is actually the art of raising bowls and teapots and making spoons and tableware. Um, I think the most famous silversmith, of course, was Paul Revere. And I never achieved that level of silversmithing. I became more interested in jewelry making. Uh, When I was in high school, my senior year, I did an independent study with my art teacher in silversmithing. I built a copper box with brass inlay. I taught myself how to raise a copper bowl. I learned uh, how to do some copper enameling. I made a spoon, and I did receive an award for that. I received a Departmental Achievement Award upon graduation. Okay. Let's step back a little bit. And let's focus a bit more on the entrepreneurship because you've been a successful entrepreneur and I really do believe that entrepreneurship as well as career passion uh, both are rooted in childhood. Tell us how you felt when you sold something. I mean, how, what did, how did it make you feel? made me feel really proud and really excited and actually to this day I still love selling. It really um, is an affirmation of my talent that people can enjoy my work and love it and covet it and collect it. Uh, I was rewarded at a very early age by getting paid for my work when I was eight years old. Do um, you I was remember what you charged at eight years old for your work that you created? <laughs> I knew you were going to ask me that question. I really think it was about oh five cents or fifteen cents. All right. I don't. I don't think it would have even been as much as fifty cents. Right. It was just delightful to receive that reward. Well, I'm sure that your parents must have been fascinated that well, my, you were able to to sell at an early age. They were very encouraging. They um, always built self-confidence. They gave me a great sense of responsibility. Um, My father, actually, after I took the jewelry-making class and the silversmithing class at Decordova Museum, actually built me a buffing wheel out of an old washing machine motor that he had in our basement, and he set up a workshop for me next to his workshop in the basement. Ah, so then he treated you as a colleague, in essence. Had you thought about that? I haven't really thought about that. But think about he did it. definitely treat me as a colleague. I was always treated in a very mature way by my parents. Which I think is another reason why you are confident in your ability to achieve. Because in essence, if your dad set up a workspace for you adjoining his, what could be a higher form of in terms of a compliment than that. It was a very high compliment. 
I learned early on that I had to keep it organized or I would hear a roar from the basement from my dad if I hadn't put all my tools back in the same place. All right. But then you learned how to organize yourself. I learned how to organize myself and I learned a um, sense of responsibility from that. I also think, too, that when you organize the physical environment, it helps you organize yourself mentally. I think it's difficult to have an organized mind if you live in a chaotic environment. What are your thoughts, Maria? I agree completely. Um, I think being organized is always part of the process. Um, I learned, I taught myself actually to clear my bench at the end of every project. Everything has to be put away in its place. Everything is precisely located so that next time I go to start a project, I know where everything is. And I definitely learned that from my father. So he, in essence, when you were a child, started to teach you how to manage the process. Absolutely. Let's go a bit further. I wanted to talk more about your dad, who's now uh, 96. Six. Tell us what he's doing today. I think it will excite our listeners. Well, I am very fond of my dad, obviously, and I have huge admiration for him. At the age of 96, he's currently living in Kennebunkport, Maine. He is currently working. He's actively getting new commissions for work. He's working with different museums. He was commissioned by the Kenny Bunkport Garden um, Club to make a bronze sundial for Barbara Bush, which they gifted to her. Wow, that's impressive. You know, I would love to interview your dad. I hope that you will mention that to him. I would love to. He um, is a wonderful speaker. He actually gave a college commencement speech not long ago at a small college in Maine. And I met a fellow who was a teacher at that college who was so happy to meet me because he was so impressed with my dad. And your dad, I'm gathering, is in good health and just works every day the way he has all his years, apparently. He's in fabulous health. He's in great mental shape. He drives without being a menace, and he's most charming. Is he on any kind of special diet? In other words, I'm trying to now probe to figure out, does your dad have secrets to living to age 96, working every day, being highly successful? Is there anything we need to know more about him, Maria? Well, he does all the cooking and has for a long time. He eats very healthy foods. He's very proud of the fact that he's at the same weight that he was when he was a captain in the Army during World War II. He's the same weight. He's shorter, though. Right. Okay. <laughs> so he's never put on any weight. Um, is he a vegan or vegetarian no, not really. He's very healthy. He walks to town. He's very active in town politics, in the library. Um, he's active in all of the art projects that are going on in Kenny Bunkport. He, he's in juried shows there. He's taken first place for some of his paintings. He's absolutely incredible. He is incredible. I absolutely must talk with him. Let's go further. What did you do after high school? I know that you and your parents didn't agree about what you should be doing. Tell us what their thoughts were and what you did. Well, I really wanted to go to a jewelry making program. In fact, I wanted to go to the one at the Boston Museum School. And my parents had both been entrepreneurs, both selling their craft and when they got married and started a family of four children they both closed their businesses even though they were successful because they had a family of four to raise and put through college and they felt very strongly that I needed to have a bachelor's degree um, in a liberal arts degree so that at least I would have something to fall back on. 
So then you went to the University of Massachusetts, am I correct? Yes, in Amherst. All right. But then subsequently, you did go to the Academy of Jewelry Arts in New York. Uh, Why was this the right fit school for you? Because you had to move. So what, what intrigued you? Well, fortunately, I had a store on Martha's Vineyard at that point. I was in my late 20s, and I had the store in Vineyard Haven, and it was a seasonal store. So I had the opportunity to move to New York for three to four months. Um, I had a friend who offered me a free place to stay in Manhattan, which was fabulous. And the reason that the Jewelry Academy actually was originally called Kulik Stark for the two founders, Bob Kulik and Jean Stark, the reason that it was such a good fit for me was there were very flexible student hours. I had never worked for anybody else, and I was used to working for myself, working long hours. They had long hours. I could work till 10 or 11 o'clock at night. I could be in there at 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, I could set my own pace, which was very perfect for me. Um, they put me on a rapid track, actually. Um, help was always available by either the teacher owners or the apprentices that were there or other advanced students. So I spent every minute that I could there. Were they at that time the Juilliard of jewelry making? Absolutely, I would say so. They worked with a museum. Bob Kulik worked with the Museum of Metropolitan Art in New York City to rediscover the lost art of granulation. It was something that the Etruscans had been doing, actually the Egyptians had been doing, the early Greeks, the Byzantines, and it was a lost art. Nobody knew how to do that, and they founded this school to teach three lost arts of jewelry making. The first was gold granulation, the second was cloisonne enameling, and the third was hand faceting of stones. So I studied all three of those with them. Let's step back a moment to your shop in Martha's Vineyard. How did you manage to finance that shop? Well, um, I used my dad as an advisor, and he advised me to write up a business proposal and a business plan and take it to the Martha's Vineyard National Bank. I wanted a loan on my own. I didn't want to have a a loan co-signed by my parents. And I had a meeting with the president of the Martha's Vineyard National Bank, and I asked, I had a savings, actually, of $1,500, and I asked for a startup loan of $5,000 to open my store at that time. Did they give you all the money that you asked for? Well, eventually they did, but the interesting thing is that the second meeting that I had with the president of the bank, um, he told me that the board of advisors, the board had met, and that they were impressed with my application and the fact that I didn't want to get it co-signed, but they felt that for an unsecured loan for somebody of my age without any business experience, they only felt comfortable with giving me a loan of $2,500. So how did you persuade yourself, I mean persuade them, uh, using what I call a broadcast to convince them to give you the 5000 Well, I very graciously thanked the president of the bank for their consideration, and I said, I really believe that I need the full $5,000, and $2,500 really would not work for me. And to my amazement, after a second meeting with the board, he came back to me and granted the full loan. How old were you at that time, Maria? 21. It's amazing at age 21 that you were able to do that. But again, I think it's a testimony to the fact that you knew what you needed in order to open the store. And how successful was the store? 
Oh, very successful. I had a store in Martha's Vineyard for over 25 years in the town of Vineyard Haven. And then eventually partnering with my husband, Tom Thompson, we opened a beautiful store on Newbury Street in Boston. That was year-round. And eventually we decided that we wanted to move west, and we opened up a third gallery in Aspen, Colorado. Oh. So now the years were passing, and... You eventually decided to close the stores, even though they were financially rewarding. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. Tell us why you wanted to change your business model. Well, I found out that I really wasn't a business person. I had never had a business degree, Um, and I really was overwhelmed with all of the different custom work and demands on me by customers that wanted me to do things for them that I didn't really want to do. In other words, I had a lot of requests for custom orders that really didn't satisfy me in a creative way. And the fact is that when you have retail stores, you're really a slave to the hours of the retail stores. You don't have holidays off. You'll have Christmas Day, Thanksgiving Day, Easter Day, but not even any time to prepare. I don't think I cooked a Thanksgiving dinner for my family and for my husband in 25 years. Because you're always open, apparently. Always open. And the store on Martha's Vineyard was open from 10 o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. And it had grown, actually, from a summer business to a year-round business because the so-called shoulder seasons had really expanded. I thought I would be working from May to September, and it turned out that it really became a year-round business. In what year did you close the stores? Well, I closed them gradually. I closed the store in Boston first, It was just too much living in Aspen and having a store in Boston and Martha's Vineyard. I thought I would be able to handle that. Um, It turned out that Aspen was surprisingly also not just a seasonal business. I kind of had made the assumption that I would have a summer business on Martha's Vineyard and a winter business in Aspen. But in fact, Aspen had grown its seasons into being a year-round store as well, and I just couldn't do both. So I closed the Vineyard Haven store, sold it to a dear friend of mine who still carries my jewelry. Okay. It's interesting you said that you had made the assumption. There is a whole chapter in my book, Win Without Competing, entitled Make No Assumptions, Open Those Doors. And I think that it's important that you recognized that you had made an erroneous assumption and that you weren't going to spend the rest of your life doing what you didn't want to do. That's correct. I actually read that part. I was It was very interesting and amusing how you got your appointment with Dr. Jonas Salk because you decided that you were not making any assumptions. And um, you're absolutely right. Either make no assumptions or when you realize that you're making them, turn it around and go forward. Well, it was interesting. When I went met with Dr. Salk, I was with the National Cancer Institute, National Institutes of Health, And I was giving a presentation in the La Jolla area and actually called the Salk Institute, introduced myself, and arranged the appointment. I actually spent an hour with Jonas Salk. When I went back to the NCI, the National Cancer Institute, my colleagues were shocked because what they were doing was writing to him and waiting for a response. I, on the other hand, picked up the phone and spoke to the assistant and asked about arranging an appointment. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a memorable adventure, including that there were guards outside the institute and I had to be escorted to his office. Um, it It was a fascinating adventure. 
I love that story. I really admire you for that. I think it's fabulous. And um, we can all learn from that story. Pick up the phone and see what happens. Absolutely. Going further, now you travel around the country to juried art shows. I have seen your beautiful jewelry for many years at the Affair in the Garden in Beverly Hills. What attracts me is its uniqueness. You have a distinct brand which evolved from your ability to think divergently, the essence of creativity. You set a standard against which no one can compete. Tell us about how you decided to pair complementary colors with opposite colors using little-known gemstones, keeping in mind that our listeners are going to want to know what is it you're doing that is divergent thinking. So again, let me repeat it. You decided to pair complementary colors with opposite colors using little-known gemstones. So take it from there, Maria. All right. Well, I've been doing this full-time for over 40 years, so I am very excited when a new gemstone comes on the market. And the way that a new gemstone comes on the market is advances in mining techniques and in technology. For example, mining techniques now enable us to go deeper and deeper into the earth to mine these little-known stones, and people are looking for new stones all the time. It's kind of a Wild West culture out there in places like Afghanistan and Africa and Madagascar and India and all over the world, really. So when a new stone comes to me, I'm thrilled because now I have a new stone to add to my color palette. Some of the stones have very unusual names. People laugh. There's a stone called Appetite. It's actually spelled A-P-A-T-I-T-E, but it always gets a laugh from people. And it's a beautiful, clear, turquoise blue stone. It's pretty soft, but it's usable in jewelry. And I have an innate color sense. That's what I won the Spectrum Award for. It's a oh. color award. I can see color in my mind. I can see color in my dreams. And I can see color in the dark. So when I pick up a new stone, maybe something that's a brilliant, bright, bright orange, I will immediately see it in combination with other colors. So I see it in a combination with tanzanite, which is a purple-blue, which right. is an opposing color, and peridot, which is a lime green, which is also sort of an opposite color, and pink tourmaline, which is a hot pink, which is a complementary color. So now, generally speaking, what you're doing is unique, Maria, that people don't generally do this kind of pairing, the complementary with the opposite, I think that's true. Um, I think that I have an unusual color sense. I always get complimented on it. People look at my jewelry and they say, clearly I'm looking at something that no one has ever done before. And also, I'm very mechanically minded, so I'm constantly inventing new techniques. I use a lot of wire wrapping with very small specialized tools that are very expensive that come from Sweden. Oh. and I just, they're an extension of my hands, an extension of what I see in my mind. Shortly, we'll be talking about the actual process that you go through. So, well, let's wait on that for a moment. I wanted to probe about your divergent thinking. When I wrote my doctoral dissertation on creativity at UCLA, I became intensely aware of how the ability to think divergently could change our lives. Yet many of us don't explore that aspect of our brain. I observe this in my coaching practice in which my clients must think about how to search for a new job differently 
or figure out innovative ways to change their business and even their personal lives. Is your ability to think divergently rooted in childhood? Did your parents encourage you to think about new ways to do things? Well, yes. They were very encouraging. They never held me back. Um, They taught me how to think in new ways. My father, I was the youngest of four siblings, actually they're half-siblings. My father treated me as an equal and, as you said, correctly as a colleague. And when he was fixing things around the house, he would take me along and teach me how to do them. So from a very early age, I understood a lot about mechanics, which has certainly helped me in my jewelry making. I think about every piece of jewelry that I make. I think about the comfort, the, the strength, the durability, the weight of it. It can't be too heavy. How can I make something that no one has ever seen before? And I'm very successful in doing that because my father taught me a lot about mechanics and art and drawing and painting. My mother taught me a lot about um, all kinds of things. I just I was all brought up in a very inventive environment, truly, where failure was not an option. You just had to rethink it. You just said it. Failure was not an option. You had to rethink it, which means you needed to think divergently. You couldn't come up with one solution. You needed many solutions. Am I correct, Maria? That's absolutely correct. My my work is very mechanical and very labor-intensive, and it's interesting because when I show it to other jewelers who've never seen my work before, I get two reactions. One is, oh, I don't even know what I'm looking at, or they say, oh my gosh, this work is so intense, you must be insane. <laughs> well, we know you're not insane, so... My <laughs> <laughs> work, work is a little insane. If if you understood jewelry making, and which you don't because you don't come from that background, right. but people who do are just constantly amazed by what I do. Well, let's let's... Can you walk us through your design process? And tell us what you do that's unique about the design process that really makes people stand up and take notice. Okay, that's a hard question to answer cohesively. However, um, I I started several different ways. I've been drawing and sketching and doing drafting, mechanical drafting, architectural drafting, since I was very young. So sometimes I start with a drawing. And I also am very uh, highly influenced by museum going. Ever since I was a child, my parents used to take me into Boston to the the Museum of Fine Art on a really regular basis. And I looked at, I was fascinated by any kind of metalworking. So that could be weaponry, it could be armor, it could be teapots, it could be jewelry. Just fascinated me. So I have a lot of different influences. I'm very influenced architecturally. So, for example, one of the most successful designs I ever came up with was I wanted to make a sterling and 18-karat gold cap for a cultured pearl that would be on an ear wire for an earring. And I was just going through some architectural books and all of a sudden I had the idea that I could use the top of a Roman column as a pearl cap. And it's beautiful and it's been one of my best sellers continually for, oh, I'd say for about at least 15 years. Hmm. In fact, one of the places, unusual places that I sold it to, I sold it to a lot of museum stores, was the American Building Museum in Washington, D.C., they bought that column top earring. So in terms of creating the design, okay, so you you draft the design, and then what what do you do subsequent to that? In other words, do you physically do all the work to create the jewelry, or do you have somebody else doing the, the next steps? In other well, words, taking your design and then 
um, not, you know, creating it from the design? That's a two-pronged answer because I'm able, because I'm a metalsmith and a jeweler, I'm able to make some of the models in metal, and I also work closely with a wax carver. I'm oh. really not interested in wax carving. I thought I needed it to have it as a skill initially, but it really didn't excite me the way that working with metal did. So I work with several different model makers, and now I'm working with CAD CAM, which is computer-assisted design, and we are doing that in our own studio. I see. So you do have a staff then that works with you. My husband works with me, and I also have people who work with me or for me whom, who I train, and I train everyone personally. Ah, and that's how you keep the standard high, is that correct? That is correct, and that's how I'm able to keep up with the not only the quality but the quantity of work that I make because we're really particular and very precise in our work, and I train people to be very precise and very perfect professional and to be very um, have very high standards of perfection. I'm curious about how you figure out how to price the jewelry. Well, it's interesting that you said that. When I was in my early 20s, I think it was the same time actually when I was attending the Kulik Stark Academy in New York, I took a very brief course at Parsons in New York in pricing your jewelry. And there were two professional jewelry artists, very successful business people who had different formulas. And they taught me two different formulas. One was to take the cost of your materials, the cost of your labor, and triple that and see what that came out to be. That would be one way of coming up with your wholesale price. And the second person had a different formula. And he actually was more successful and more high-end. His name is Larry Seegers, and he is a fabulous jeweler in New York. And he took the price of his materials, the cost of his labor, and a profit margin. And actually from those two different formulas, I learned to compare them, and they really basically always came out the same. Ah. I mean, you're saying the the same price, you mean? Yeah, the same price. There's a formula for pricing jewelry as there is, I'm sure, in other manufacturing fields that I don't know about, but um, I have to take into consideration the fact also that my work is almost exclusively one of a kind. So when we're making a necklace or any piece, we weigh all of the components. We weigh the amount of gold that goes into it, the amount of the gemstones, the carat weight, the carat price of the gemstones, the cost of labor, a small profit margin. And we actually my husband made a um, program for a computer for price calculating. Ah, Well, you've mentioned your husband a number of times. Tell us a bit about Tom and how you met him. Well, I met him on Martha's Vineyard a long time ago through mutual friends. We've been married for, I think, our 25th anniversary is coming up. We were married on Martha's Vineyard. And, in fact, I never told you this, but our wedding was in the first Martha Stewart wedding book. Oh, how fascinating. How did Martha Stewart find you? Well, a friend of mine was running a beautiful antique inn on the vineyard called the Captain Flanders Inn. It's a fabulous place with a windmill and barns and an antique farmhouse with oh floorboards and stained glass windows. It's really fabulous. And it turned out that she, I asked her if I could have the wedding there. And they were, I was very good friends with their family. And she said, of course, it was the first wedding that had ever been there. And she said that she had worked for a caterer in Connecticut who was doing a book on weddings. And would she mind if this person came and had a photographer and, you know, included our wedding in the book? Well, I didn't know it was Martha Stewart, who I had heard of and had several of her earlier books. 
but I didn't know she was coming until a week before the wedding, and I was a nervous wreck. <laughs> well, once you found out, as you, you could imagine, a wreck, right? So then, <laughs> how did how did you how did that work out meeting Martha Stewart? Well, you know, it was interesting. I never actually met her. I saw her once at the wedding from afar. She was smart enough not to interview me on my wedding day, which I really appreciated. She had a photographer there, and she had a writer who interviewed me. And interestingly enough, the the woman who was the writer, I've forgotten her name now, was had known me, had known my store, and she and her husband had a son who was basically had um, a, a very dangerous illness, possibly lethal. And believe it or not, her husband came into my store in Vineyard Haven and purchased, we had some vintage watches that we had restored, and we purchased a vintage watch for us, gave it to his son as a gift, and his son miraculously recovered within two to three weeks. So it's wonderful in the Martha Stewart wedding book because she calls my store in Vineyard Haven the local temple of jewelry. Ah, do you still have that issue? I, I have the book. It's autographed yes. by Martha Stewart. It's fabulous. <laughs> it really is. It's that you actually have the book autographed. That's wonderful. So let's go forward. Let's learn more about Tom. How does he? What role does he play um, in your jewelry business? I guess before and today. In other words, so we sort of get a sense as to how you two have worked together. Well, it's interesting. I'm not a mathematical person at all, although I can do three-dimensional sculpture work, but I never loved mathematics, and I never was interested in the business side of the work. My husband is a mathematical genius. In college, he majored in abstract mathematics and went on to be an actuary at John Hancock and as well do some of the earliest computer mapping programs in the world. And he still writes programs. He still writes computer code. He's written a lot of programs for our business that have been really helpful, like the price calculator. And he decided that it would be fun to work with me in my store. He'd never really done anything that creative before. It turned out that, yes, he can draw, although he hasn't been drawing all of his life. Yes, he's a good jewelry designer. He's good with mechanics, as I am. And um, he designs with me as well as really encourages me and takes care of a lot of the ugly business work that I don't really want to do. I'm very fortunate. How do you balance your personal and professional life given that you're working together? I mean, there are many couples who work together. Some find it easier. Some find it more difficult to balance the personal and professional life. Some cannot separate the two. I've had couples that tell me that one just goes into the other and it's just a continuous thing. How does it work in your marriage? It's been a process. I, of course, was independently and self-employed for many years before I met Tom. And then we were married for about, oh, three or four years um, before we decided to work together. So initially, I really had a hard time giving up all of the creative design process. And I think perhaps I was somewhat threatened by it, but I never had a partner before who would try to help me with or edit my work. And he was very clever. Initially, my jewelry was really geared and um, directed towards museum stores. I sold to the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, the stores at the Whitney, the National Museum, oh, all kinds of stores, and they were all museum stores. Um, So he said, took me aside one day and said, now listen, if this is going to support both of us, 
we need to broaden our horizons. He said, yeah, you're doing really well in museum stores, but there are a whole lot more jewelry stores in the world than there are museum stores. So maybe we need to broaden our perspective and make it more approachable to more people. So he was he was thinking divergently. That's true. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it really was a very smart thing to do. And this was about oh fifteen or sixteen years ago. And he said, Let's look at what is really popular in the culture right now. Like the pet rock, but we're gonna do it in jewelry. So I said, Okay, well, cherubs are really popular right now. They were everywhere. And he said, you're right, so why don't we design a cherub? And he said, why don't we design the cherub that has that beautiful, that really cute little arm on its elbow, and we'll make it as a pearl cap, and the little angel will be looking like it's leaning on its elbow, and the pearl will be the cloud that it's leaning on. And I said, okay, but let's not just do the front of it with the wings and the face. Let's do the back of it, too, so it's three-dimensional, and it's a little cherub with a naked little bottom, and it's legs, bare legs and bare feet kicking up in the back. And it was hugely successful. That was the first piece that we did that was geared towards a broader audience. So, in essence... He has helped you from the perspective of running the businesses that you've had both today and in the past Mm -hmm. and also broadening your horizons in terms of marketing and design. Does that sound right to you, Maria? That is exactly right. And and, um, as a result of that, it really encouraged me to broaden my markets and to reach out to uh, do a lot more press releases, a lot more apply for a lot more awards, um, get into other stores. You know, I really had very few jewelry stores 15 years ago when we started on this project together. I sold in my own stores, and then I wholesaled to mainly high-end craft galleries all around the country and increased my market hugely by targeting jewelry stores. And so instead of just doing wholesale craft markets like the Buyer's Market of American Craft in Philadelphia, which is a market for craft gallery owners, store owners to come to and buy, I started doing other trade shows based on directed to the jewelry market. So that would be the Jewelers of America show in New York City and the jewelry couture shows in Las Vegas, etc. Stepping back to something we talked about earlier, managing the process. I want to connect career passion with managing the process. In other words, passion is not enough to achieve career success. What strategies have you used to turn passion into career success? How have you managed the process to do that? Because as you know, many people have passion. Where they fall short is knowing how to turn that passion into success? Well, in a lot of ways, I think I was in the right place at the right time. With the right encouragement and foundation from my parents, I was on Martha's Vineyard, which was a fabulous place to be with people with a lot of creativity and and money. And um, I first moved there when I was 17. I had a roommate, Jill Greenwood, who had a wonderful little dress shop there that she owned from the time she was 15 years old called Pandora's Box. And I would sew with her, and she allowed me to set up a jewelry workshop in the back of her store. So I was 17 years old, and I started selling jewelry in that one store in Menemsha. And I got a lot of encouragement to place things on consignment in jewelry stores locally around Massachusetts where I grew up, other towns on Martha's Vineyard, in Nantucket, and kind of local local markets. And it was very successful to the point where I 
had the self-confidence to no longer consign work into stores, but to get them to buy. And I really didn't know how to price until I took that course, that class at Parsons in pricing your jewelry. That enabled me to have the self-confidence to know what to sell it for. And having my own stores was an automatic market test for me. I could see what sold and what color combinations sold the best and what lengths of necklaces, etc., sold the best. And um, so I had a lot of feedback from all of the different venues that I was involved in. What's interesting is that you early on saw opportunity and seized upon it. And then were reliable enough to continue building because that's what you basically have described. First you're setting up the shop, then you're going on to consignment, and you keep adding layers so you just continue growing your business. Well, I, I would always have always had a sense of self-reliance and responsibility and I think was smart about doing savings in addition to expanding my businesses from the time I was 16, 17, 21 until today. I just reinvest in my business and I've been expanding my horizons and I've been expanding my jewelry designs and I've always been open to anything new. I'm not afraid of that. Well, you're a risk taker. I mean, every person who's a successful entrepreneur must be a risk taker. What advice do you have to struggling entrepreneurs as well as those who are thinking about becoming entrepreneurs? Well, obviously the first place to start is that the economy is really not great right now, and so it can be very discouraging for people. I think there were a lot more opportunities even 10 years ago for entrepreneurs. Not to say that there aren't, but I think one would have to be extremely focused, extremely um, self-confident, not afraid of failure, and very dedicated and devoted and focused on what it is that they want to do and just go forward. I don't think it's a an environment for anyone who's timid for or for anyone who can't accept any criticism or any failure because this day and age you just have to go forward and you have to be proactive. Very well said, Maria. You are our win without competing woman today. I want to thank you for sharing your story. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and do want to invite you to come back soon. And please do stay on to listen to our upcoming shows. Thank you, Arlene. It was delightful. Thank you, Maria. Upcoming shows. Please join me again next Wednesday, June 24th. I will interview award-winning Daniela Kame, the mistress of whimsical sculpture, whose works are imaginative and bursting with color. Bicycle chains come to life as cascading hair, discarded metal tools, and bolts are artfully transformed into works of art. On July 1st, Sandra Grassi Nelipovich, award-winning batik artist. On July 8th, Sherilyn Kenyon, who, according to Publishers Weekly, is the reigning queen of the vampire novel. Kenyon had four books on the New York Times bestseller list in one year. On July 15th, award-winning investigative journalist Stephen Freed, who is the author of four acclaimed books, The New Rabbi, Bitter Pills Inside the World of Legal Drugs, Thing of Beauty, The Tragedy of Supermodel Gia, and Husbandry. I would love to hear from you. Please email me, drbarro, that's Dr. Barrow, at 
winwithoutcompeting.com or call 310-441-5305. Please remember that I'm based in Los Angeles. That's 310-441-5305. To learn more about my Right Fit Method and Win Without Competing, Career Success the Right Fit Way, visit winwithoutcompeting.com. For information about career coaching, visit drbarrow.com. That's drbarrow.com. And for search services, barrowglobal.com. B-A-R-R-O-G-L-O-B-A-L.com. Remember this trigger tip, walk down the right fit road and you will win without competing. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, Career Coach One, founder and CEO, Barrow Global Search, Inc. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.